a Podcast One production. A few months back, I got a message from an old friend. Hey, he said, I know someone who's created a new cryptocurrency and they're giving it away. Just mail the woman who's created it and ask her for some of the coins and she'll set you up. Why was she doing this? I wondered, are the coins worth anything? That's what I asked my friend. Well, he said, I forwarded the request because she's really well connected. She's got almost 70,000 followers on Twitter. I think her coin has to do with access to clean water and she wants people to track her project. I thought about it. Didn't really add up. Just giving something away to people doesn't make it special. It doesn't make it exclusive. It doesn't make it worthy of attention. Giving something away doesn't create value. More often than not, withholding something creates value. Like the scarcity by design of Bitcoin. There will only ever be 21 million of them. But hey, I thought, it's not going to cost me anything. So I emailed the woman. I politely asked for some coins. And within a few days, I'd received those coins, 400,000 of them. Now, I store these in a digital wallet. It's a simple, safe place to put the data representing those coins. I can peek in on them every once in a while when I remember. But what are they good for? Nothing that I can see. Okay, that's being unkind. They're worth whatever someone might want to pay for them. I didn't pay anything for mine. I'm not sure why anyone else would pay for them. So what is it that gives a cryptocurrency value? Mark Pesci, and welcome to the fourth episode of Cryptonomics, a series dedicated to exploring and explaining the way cryptocurrencies and the technology underneath them, the blockchain, will transform our entire world. Along the way, we'll learn what makes it all tick, how people are using this technology to do amazing things, and what it all means for the future of money, finance, investing, and the economy. We'll speak to folks who have built successful businesses using the blockchain, some of whom have even created their own successful cryptocurrencies. We'll learn how things work, why they work, and when they don't. By the time we're finished, you should understand enough to make your own investment calls. You'll have the tools you need to investigate any cryptocurrency investment. Is it real? Is it wise? Is it a good investment? We can't answer these questions for you but you'll learn which questions you need to ask and the sorts of answers you'll want to receive. But cryptocurrencies, they're only the tip of the iceberg. The whole field of blockchain isn't even a decade old and it's already working its way into the core of some very established businesses, including energy. And it's being used as the foundation for some entirely new ones. Over the next billion seconds, the entire world of economics, everything that's touched by money, will be changed by this new technology. And that's why we're calling this series Cryptonomics. When you look beyond the ripples produced by the rise and fall in the price of Bitcoin, you can see another wave, a tsunami of change that will roll over banks, stock markets, even nations. Now, there's a lot of hype surrounding cryptocurrencies. Some of that hype is justified. It's a new way of doing business, and it will force businesses as old and as established as energy to make way for it. And when we come back, we'll dig into the question of coins. Where have they all come from? Why are some of them worth so much and others so little? (music) 
Welcome back to episode four of Cryptonomics. We're taking a look at the explosive growth in the number of Bitcoin clones, competitors, and alternatives, asking why any of them are worth anything at all. Let's start with a look at where all these coins came from. In the beginning, there was Bitcoin, and it was good. People saw the value in Bitcoin and wanted it for themselves. Now, in a few cases, they wanted something slightly different. Maybe they wanted to create more than 21 million coins. Maybe they wanted to store different kinds of information in the ledger. Maybe they wanted to use permission rather than consensus to change that ledger. Everyone saw the value in Bitcoin, but they also saw value in what they wanted to change in Bitcoin. Fortunately, all of that was relatively easy. It was easy because the creators of Bitcoin, Satoshi Nakamoto and the small crew of technical experts who gathered around him, they shared all of their work freely. Bitcoin has always been open source software. That means it's free for anyone to copy and modify for any purpose whatsoever. Bitcoin was more than a coin. It was more than an idea. It was more like a very big and sleek machine that came with a complete manual for disassembly and reassembly according to whatever design an enterprising individual or group of individuals could create. And that's a big deal because it meant that Bitcoin wasn't ever going to be just a single instance of a blockchain-based ledger or cryptocurrency. All of the innovations described in Satoshi Nakamoto's white paper had been implemented within the Bitcoin source code where anyone could learn from them or copy them. And that's exactly what people did. Among the first of these clones of Bitcoin to achieve success was one named Litecoin. Litecoin is very similar to Bitcoin. It has some important differences. Now, Rather than creating a new block every 10 minutes, which is how fast the Bitcoin network of traders does it, the Litecoin network creates a new block every two and a half minutes, four times faster. And similarly, the number of Litecoin are capped at 84 million. That's exactly four times the maximum number of Bitcoin. And the way the miners work, putting the blocks together for the Litecoin blockchain, that's different too. Now, these aren't huge differences. But the big difference is that Litecoin is its own network of traders. It's completely separate from and independent of the Bitcoin trading network. And that meant that Litecoin could attract its own traders, people who preferred Litecoin to Bitcoin, and those traders would set the value of Litecoin. And it turns out traders like Litecoin. A single Litecoin is worth nearly a hundred Australian dollars. Now, that's maybe not as much as the thousands of dollars of each Bitcoin, but Litecoin was created from nothing just by copying and modifying a bit of code. Copy, paste, poof, five billion dollars in value. It's quite a trick. Now, a few weeks before Litecoin, another coin, Namecoin, launched. Now, like Bitcoin, Namecoin limited itself to 21 million coins. But unlike Bitcoin, Namecoin considered the ledger as something that could hold more than just transaction data. The Namecoin ledger isn't just move this Namecoin from this account to that account. That's pretty much all that's in the Bitcoin ledger. Instead, the Namecoin ledger allowed anyone to store some information unrelated to the transaction within the ledger. Now, 
Why would you want to do that? Well, let's say there's a very important piece of data, the kind of data that you really don't want to get lost or destroyed or censored. How do you ensure that it sticks around? How do you ensure that there's always a copy available? Well, one way to do that is by making lots of copies and then making sure that lots of people are holding on to all those copies. Now, that's effectively how the Bitcoin ledger works. It's a lot of very important data that is copied and shared with all of the Bitcoin traders. And there's gigabytes and gigabytes and gigabytes of that. It's the same for Namecoin, but along with that important transaction data, it carries other data and copies it into so many places across the entire network of Namecoin traders that it couldn't be destroyed without destroying the entirety of the Namecoin trading network. That's about as safe as you can get with data. And that's a really good reason to use the Namecoin ledger, data persistence and safety. Now, in our last episode, we looked at all the ways that blockchain can be used to store lists of assets. Namecoin is effectively the first example of using a blockchain to store something other than transactions. So it is the ancestor of almost all of the blockchain projects we see today. Blockchains that store information that has nothing to do with transactions, like the assets that you own or the grain that you've stored. Now, in order to store data in the Namecoin ledger, you do need to own some Namecoin. To use the data storage, you have to invest in Namecoin. And that gives people a reason to own Namecoin so that you can use the service. And here, for the first time, there's a value in ownership that isn't simply based on belief and scarcity as it is with Bitcoin. Namecoin provides value. Now, you'd think that would give Namecoin huge value, yet each Namecoin only costs about $2. Real value, perceived value, they're not always aligned. But no one could deny that Namecoin provided real value and created nearly $30 million in value by providing a service. So now there was Bitcoin and Litecoin and Namecoin And it was good. And people started to realize that if they created their own coins, they could magic up millions of dollars out of nothing more than copy and paste. And so they did. The world saw an explosion in what are now known as altcoins. Coins similar to Bitcoin in design and operation with maybe a few small tweaks to make them unique enough to attract interest. Most of them were nothing very special. People would copy and paste the code and launch their own trading networks. That will only get you so far. Eventually, people will ask what's different or special about your coin. And then Ethereum came along. Now, on our next episode, we'll go into detail about what makes Ethereum so special. And it's truly a new model for cryptocurrency, smart money. But there was something else very innovative about Ethereum, the way it launched. Let's hear from Mark Jeffrey, who was around at the time and remembers. I started a podcast myself in 2014 uh, called Bitcoin News Weekly. We went around and interviewed everyone who we thought was interesting in not only the Bitcoin space, but in the cryptocurrency space. Um, and we did something like 30 episodes or so. And uh, many of those people are <laughs> no longer doing th- doing projects. Uh, but some of them are. One of the interviews we got was an early Vitalik Buterin interview before the Ethereum ICO. 
He was just cooking it up and was about to launch the Ethereum ICO. So he described what it was. We, we'd never heard this concept of an ICO before, right? So, you know, Vitalik was telling us, hey, so you're going to be able to buy my coins before they exist. And you're going to give me some Bitcoin and I'm going to give you some Ethereum, like, you know, somewhere down the road, maybe a year. Which, you know, at that time I was kind of thinking, well, geez, I got a lot of Bitcoins because uh, I went out and bought a lot of Bitcoins right when I, when I understood what I was seeing. I bought as many as I could afford. And uh, I was kind of like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I want to give up any of my Bitcoins for this this sketchy new coin. And uh, so I, I think I ended up um, submitting like one Bitcoin to him because I was like, ah, I got to, you know, this might be something, so I'll, I'll check it out. Um, that turned out to be probably the best investment in my entire life in many ways uh, in terms of return on investment and speed and all that. Um, so being in on the Ethereum ICO was the number one investment you could make anywhere in the year 2014. Rather than simply cloning the Bitcoin code and launching another altcoin network, the creators of Ethereum promised to launch their own network, and anyone could purchase these Ethereum coins, known as Ether, using Bitcoin. In other words, people were asked to exchange their Bitcoin for Ether. Each Bitcoin would get you 2,000 Ether. And this was quite clever for two reasons. First... Because this exchange of one coin for another, it set a price for Ether. It pegged it to the price of Bitcoin. So you didn't have to believe in Ether's value because people were handing over valuable Bitcoin to own Ether. And second, perhaps accidentally, exchanging a coin with value for a new coin became a powerful new model for issuing any new coins. Ethereum was the original initial coin offering, or ICO. And that term, ICO, it's adapted from the stock market. When a firm sells its shares to retail investors for the first time, that's known as an initial public offering, or IPO. When the creators of a cryptocurrency offer their coins to retail investors, that's an initial coin offering. And rather than creating a coin and waiting for folks to buy it, an ICO makes interested parties buy coins up front, instantly creating value just by asking for it. It's a really neat trick. Now, in Ethereum's case, this value was completely justified. They sold all their coins, they launched their network in 2015, and Ethereum changed things. Before Ethereum... If you wanted to create your own coin, you'd have to clone the Bitcoin software and set up your own trading network. That's not impossible, but it does take some deep technical skills. Ethereum allowed people to create another kind of cryptocurrency, a token, without going to any of that trouble. These tokens, they live within the Ethereum trading network, which has been up and running since the middle of 2015. So there's no need to set up your own trading network. Just piggyback on an existing trading network with your new tokens. And because it was so much easier to create tokens than to clone the Bitcoin software and trading network, most of the new cryptocurrencies launched since 2015, they've been tokens rather than coins. Tokens are cheap and easy to create and don't require technical chops. There are web pages you can visit. You can fill out a few details and poof, you have all your tokens for a fee, which is paid in Ethereum. That's the price of doing business on the Ethereum network. Now, those tokens are stored and managed on the Ethereum network. That's not something the token creator needs to worry about. All of that happens behind the scenes. And because it became so easy to create tokens, 
the number of token offerings, the number of cryptocurrencies, it began to skyrocket. There were three ICOs in 2015, 29 in 2016, 873 in 2017, and there's already been 1,000 in the first half of 2018. But why? Why have a token? Coming back to the question we opened the show with, why would any token have value? What makes them special? We know what dollars are worth because we use them all the time. We know what bitcoins are worth because people are willing to give you thousands of dollars for one. What is a token worth? Well, it turns out this is a very good question to ask. When we come back from the break, we'll ask someone who has created their own token and has a good answer. Welcome back to Cryptonomics, where we're asking one of the central questions of this series. What gives a cryptocurrency value? Okay, so let's look up for a moment, away from our fixation with all things crypto, and let's look out into the real world, because we're in the midst of a huge transition in energy. Renewables are becoming cheaper than fossil fuels in many cases. The way we generate them tends to be very different. Fossil fuels require huge centralized plants to refine and generate energy. Renewables can pop up anywhere. They can be a windmill in a field or a string of solar panels on a rooftop, and we're moving into a world where we're generating more and more energy near its point of use. Now, that's good. That means it's more efficient, but it's also an accounting nightmare. If you're generating power and your neighbor is buying power, how does that work? Or if a bit later you're buying power from another neighbor, well, who's keeping track of that? How do you get paid for the power you generate and how do you pay for the power you use? Even the utility companies don't like that kind of detailed accounting. Their systems aren't set up for it. Our guest on this episode of Cryptonomics has solved this problem, creating a truly peer-to-peer energy market and in the process creating a valuable cryptocurrency. Dr. Gemma Green is the co-founder and chairman of Power Ledger. Welcome, Gemma, and your six-week-old son, Castile. Hi, great to be here. So tell us about Power Ledger. How does Power Ledger use the blockchain to make all of this accounting easy? The blockchain is the record-keeping system for the amount of electricity that's generated and consumed. And there's a few problems with traditional electricity markets. One is that it's a very long period of time to settle transactions. So in the wholesale market, it's up to 90 days to get paid. And for consumers that have solar panels on their roof, they only get the, the, the income from that if they sell it back to their energy company every two months when they get their bill. Using the blockchain, what you can do is create a more real-time market. You know, anything up to, you know, every minute intervals could be um, theoretically settled. But with the smart meters, you know, something like a 30-minute interval is completely conceivable or you might want to net payments off and settle them off at the end of the day. The problem with a 60-day settlement or a 90-day settlement, particularly with the wholesale market, is that the companies need a lot of money to run their businesses until they get paid, big working capital requirements. And furthermore, they need to put up a prudential into the wholesale market uh, if they're a buyer to cover the risk of um, non-payment or non-settlement of uh, a purchase. And uh, we created the power token, our cryptocurrency, 
um, to replicate the Prudential but with more real-time settlement. So they're not having to wait 90 days. It could be much smaller. So the size of the Prudential or the bond uh, can be much smaller. Um, but the, the power token ensures that there's an integrity of the system and then the buyers and sellers can rely on the fact that they will get paid for the electricity that they generate and consume. So this means that if I use the power tokens, I'm basically saying, okay, I'm putting money into the system so that I can guarantee that I will be able to pay you for the energy. Yes, it's a bond that would is put in escrow and will be released in the event that the electricity is not paid for. And um, the, obviously, if you're settling transactions more frequently, the amount of bonds that you're going to need to put up is far less than if you're settling transactions every 90 days. Equally, for peer-to-peer trading of electricity, the energy companies will allow their customers to trade peer-to-peer and will sell them Sparks, which is a like tokenized unit of electricity. Think like phone minutes for electricity. So they will they will pre-sell their customers Sparks so they can... Um, purchase electricity from their neighbours peer-to-peer. And uh, when the customer goes to redeem Sparks back into dollars or fiat, the power token is released from the bond um, once that's honoured and it's held in the bond uh, while the Sparks are uh, in the marketplace, if you like, to ensure the integrity of the system. So basically, we invented the, the power token to replicate electricity markets, but on a much more efficient basis. Now, this, is the Spark another cryptocurrency that you invented? Is it a, is it a portion of a power token? How does that work? No, the, the Spark is a cryptographic token, um, and it just represents uh, the lowest denomination in any country's currency. So in Australia, one cent is one Spark. In Japan, one Spark is one yen. Um, and so we're not we're not... It's not a cryptocurrency. It's just a cryptographic token. Uh, now, the amount you have to pay for electricity will mean you need more or less sparks, and that will dictate the amount of power tokens that are need to be put up as an escrow. Okay. All right. So you now have this idea that you have a blockchain that is keeping track of who's selling and who's buying the energy on a very short term basis. You now have this escrow facility. In other words, people can say, look at, I promise to buy. And in order to assure you that my promise is valued, I'm staking this money so that Mm -hmm. when it settles, I can pay you in real money. And if I don't, then I'm going to pay you in these tokens that have real value. But these tokens are now also traded outside of power ledger did you really did you know that was going to happen when you created these tokens uh we didn't at all anticipate that the amount of exchanges that would um be trading our about the power token um we are launching another product later this year called the asset germination product and that's basically to use the blockchain to fund renewable energy projects and that is another use for the power token so it will add to i guess the the utility of the token and for that reason perhaps people are wanting to to hold the power token in anticipation of um, the launch of this product and to participate in an asset germination event. So in other words, if I was going to participate maybe in a community project to build a windmill or a solar farm, then I could actually purchase the power tokens to be able to use as the investment there. Correct, yes. So what you're doing is as you're going along, you don't just have the tokenomics of how it's being used as a form of escrow. You're actually finding new ways for the token to be used in a clean energy market. Yeah, absolutely. So we've been 
looking initially at the actual transactive layer, but then we're now we're looking at also the underlying asset and how that could be funded using the blockchain as well. Gemma Green raised $34 million in PowerLedge's initial coin offering. People were willing to pay for these power tokens because they could understand why they would be valuable as a unit of exchange. But the power token sale, it's far from the largest ICO. One of the biggest so far belongs to a coin called Filecoin. Like Namecoin, Filecoin promises to store your data in a vast network of Filecoin traders, preserving it safely and securely. Now, Unlike Namecoin, Filecoin will let you store an unlimited amount of data within its network provided you can pay for that storage. And you pay for that storage, wait for it, in Filecoin. You can see the real shape of a value-for-service model. You buy Filecoins and you can store your data. As with PowerLedger, people can also sell storage on the Filecoin network and be paid for that storage in Filecoin. This is a complete ecosystem, tokenomics, giving Filecoin value. Similar tokenomics ensure PowerLedger provides value for service with energy. And then there's the basic attention token. This one is a personal favorite of mine because it solves a big problem that we created when we decided that everything on the internet should be free. Nothing is really free. There's no free lunch. That means that advertisers are paying for everything and advertisers, they want to know everything they can about you. So firms like Facebook and Google have grown very good at tracking and profiling users in order to give that information to advertisers to better target their advertising. It's a weird game forced on all of us because of the economics of a free internet. Now, the basic attention token offers an opportunity to change all of that. It wants to rewrite the value proposition. Advertisers pay you directly in basic attention tokens for your attention, for reading an ad or watching a commercial or listening to a jingle or whatever it takes. And then... When you want to read an article or watch a streaming program, or possibly even when you want to listen to a podcast, you'll pay for that in basic attention tokens. It's an economy where users earn basic attention tokens from advertisers and then spend them with content publishers. And it means the advertiser is getting what they want, your attention. The publisher is getting what they want. They're getting paid for their content. We users are getting what we want, which is to be left alone and free from invasive profiling. Now, you might be wondering, why aren't we just using dollars for all of this? You think that's easy. It's not. All of these transactions are in units of maybe a few pennies to at most a few dollars. It's actually very expensive to process what are called microtransactions in these amounts. You can't really do bank transactions that small. They're too expensive for the bank to process. And the same thing that's true with credit cards. So if we want to work with these small amounts across networks with millions of users, cryptocurrencies are the best way to do that, at least for now. So what have we learned? For Namecoin, for the Power Token, and Filecoin and Basic Attention Token, there's real value being created. There's a reason for people to own and trade these tokens. They're getting access to some service through these tokens. That all seems quite clear. What about all of the other cryptocurrencies? What about the thousand ICOs that launched in the first half of 2018? What about them? 
Almost every announcement of an ICO comes with its own white paper. There are echoes of Satoshi Nakamoto in the original Bitcoin white paper. And each white paper tries to justify the token by revealing the tokenomics, how the ecosystem behind the token will work when it's all up and running. And all of these white papers are full of promise and also hopeful. And yet... And yet, a Bloomberg article from July 2018 reported that half of all ICOs are completely worthless within the first six months after launch. The billions raised in those ICOs, it's vanished. Well, okay, it hasn't vanished. It's gone into the pockets of the folks behind those ICOs. Now, that doesn't mean that most ICOs are scams. But a lot of the time, the folks putting these ICOs together don't really understand what they're doing. They're in it for the money. Contrast that with Power Ledger. Power Ledger had been around for a few years. They'd already worked out their blockchain-based trading system for peer-to-peer energy markets. They already had a product. They had customers. They had everything up and running before they launched their ICO. Products and customers. Those are the things any investor would look for before making an investment in any firm. Those are the very same things any ICO investor should look for. The rules aren't really any different. And if you look at an ICO and all you see is a sheet of paper full of promises, well, maybe you need to look deeper because maybe there's not a lot of there there. Now, maybe you know the people involved. Maybe you trust them. Maybe they have a track record. All of that should factor into your decision to purchase tokens. But if you don't know these people... And if they don't have a track record, why would you throw money at them when you can't see a product and you have no proof that there are customers? All you have is a white paper. Well, that's asking for a whole lot of trust right there. A lot of trust without any sense of why that trust might be justified. Lately, a lot of people have lost a lot of money putting their trusts in the wrong cryptocurrencies. On the other hand, Startups have raised a lot of money through ICOs. In the first half of 2018, these firms raised over $13 billion in ICOs. That's now four times the rate of 2017, and it's not slowing down. Businesses that would have had to go to venture capitalists are finding it much easier to make tokenomics work around their product ideas. And then they launch an ICO, and they sell tokens, and that is a lot better than rounding up investors. Businesses that would have had to have gone cap in hand to venture capitalists, those businesses are building tokenomics into their product ideas. And then they're launching ICOs and selling those tokens, routing around investors. The market for tokens is so hot right now, it's easier to do a token sale than to get investment. And it requires little more than a convincing white paper and some help to whip up the hype. Venture capitalists have been getting a bit worried that they're going to be shut out of investment deals because of ICOs. And so we're starting to see VC firms create pools of funds to invest in ICOs so that they don't get left behind. The entire way we fund startup businesses is changing because every startup now has the capacity to make its own cryptocurrency. And one of those startups was founded by a friend of mine. 
You've heard from Mark Jeffrey already. In some ways, he's the patron saint of cryptonomics, not just our first guest, but because our episode on cryptocurrencies in the next billion seconds was the most downloaded episode of that series, it inspired this series. Now, back in 2014, Mark shared with me his idea for a distributed 911 system, an idea that evolved into a startup and product both known as Guardian Circle. Guardian Circle, uh, the emergency app, has a coin called Guardian that is used in various ways inside of the global decentralized 911 ecosystem that we're building. Um, now, you got to remember, um, with tokens like Guardian, the name of the game is token appreciation. Everything you do is to make the coin go up in value in some way. So we studied some of the uh, systems that are out there right now that are working. There are some actual decent examples of, um, you know, well-designed tokenomics. And there's a great site that you can go to called Blocktivity. And it shows each of the coins and the transactions or operations on each blockchain. So and it, and it basically ranks all the coins by activity. Um, so you can see, and, and basically activity corresponds to well-designed tokenomics in one fashion or another. Uh, interesting thing about this chart, the number one, two, and three coins are EOS, BitShares, and Steam. All three of those coins were designed by Dan Larimer. So he's done a very good job, clearly, of coming up with tokenomics design. So we looked at what he had done with Steam uh, and EOS and used those as examples for crafting uh, our own ecosystem. So we said, all right, how do we apply some of those lessons to Guardium and, uh, you know, decentralized emergency response? And, you know, the basic idea is to get people to stake coins for something. So in our universe, there's, there's a couple different things that you're going to stake Guardium for. And by stake, I mean you take some number of Guardium, say 100 Guardium, and you take it out of the liquid pool in your wallet and you put it into um, just another state um, so that it's locked up and you can't get to it and it takes, you know, three months to unstake it. So we know that that Guardium is not moving. It's not going to go back out onto the open market for sale. So supply and demand, if supply decreases because people are staking Guardium, then the value of all the Guardium that's left will go up. That's the idea. So the first thing we do is we tell end users of Guardium that in order to have paid response, you have to stake Guardium for your own alert. So it's kind of like you set up a reward and you put it, you know, you put like 100 Guardium into a box and you say, when I push the alarm button, that 100 Guardium is now up for grabs. And we basically then take care of figuring out who the closest and best reviewed responders are for your emergency and we send them to you. And that's in addition to your friends, family, and neighbors who are on your emergency alert network for free. But these people that we're sending are EMTs, they're professional off-duty police officers or ex-military. They're people who have skills that are good in an emergency that you want coming to you. Um, and remember, most people on Earth have no 911, so for them, this is the first kind of response they've ever had, uh, even if it's semi-pro. So... These people, in order to encourage them and incentivize them, they have to be paid in some fashion. So we say, you put up your 100 Guardium. So each one of them, if they respond to your alert, will get a third because there's three of them responding. So, um, and they have to actually get within like 100 yards of you. We can detect where they are. So there's some, there's some rules around all this. Um, and the idea is that the more Guardium you stake, the better protected you are. We have to create a marketplace. So we are creating market dynamics. 
a lot of people have said, well, geez, if you're poor, how do you, uh, you know, you can't afford that. How can you, the, the rich will be better protected than the poor. That's not fair. That's not right. Um, and we agree. So we have some, but we still have to create a marketplace. So to offset that, we have ways for people to earn Guardium in the system. So if you get, you know, your friends, family, and neighbors to download Guardian Circle, our app, and sign up, we reward you with Guardium. You're helping us grow our ecosystem. You're doing our marketing for us, so you should get paid. So we will give you Guardium. And uh, and basically, you can never spend an actual real dollar of your money and yet be protected by, quote-unquote, paid protection inside of our ecosystem. Mark Jeffrey wrote the Guardium white paper, of course. But he already had a functioning product and a product team and customers and a strategy. So the Guardian token sale went very well. It raised the millions needed to take Guardian Circle forward as a business. And as an advisor from the start of Guardian Circle, I received some Guardian. It's important for me to be transparent about this because Mark Jeffrey is both a knowledgeable person in cryptocurrencies and a friend of 20 years. But I'm also a beneficiary of his ICO, and now you know. Now, I'm not saying you should like or dislike the Guardian token. This is not investment advice. But in my opinion, Guardian does pass the checks that any ICO needs to pass. A great team, a great product, a great market, before any token enters the picture. Now, contrast that to the 400,000 coins I received for nothing several months back. Guardian are worth actual money. And as Guardian Circle builds its network of users, it should increase in value. Now, there's no promises there. It's a startup. Anything could happen. But at least there's a business, an ecosystem, and a token of value. Without those, you have nothing. On the next episode of Cryptonomics, we're going to put our pedal to the metal and explore the latest craze in cryptocurrencies, smart contracts. That's on the next episode of Cryptonomics. If you want to learn more about the topics we've explored in this episode, or learn more about our guest, Dr. Gemma Green, cruise on over to our website at cryptonomics.show. You'll find everything there to go deeper, as deep as you need to learn as much as you want. That's cryptonomics.show. Cryptonomics was written and presented by Mark Pesci, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Alex Mitchell and sound production by Matt Nikolich. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search The Next Billion Seconds Cryptonomics on Apple Podcasts. This is Mark Pesci. Thanking you for listening.